Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Originally, we recorded this episode as a now what because it was in response to a listener question. And that's sort of our normal format. Listener question, Friday now what episode. Except the question took us down such a weighty and important path that we've decided to air it as a Tuesday episode. And I think when you listen, you'll understand why. And we say this in the episode, but I will say it here in gratitude to this listener for sending us such an important question and for trusting us to answer it thoughtfully and helpfully. Hi, Cara. Hey, Vanessa. We got an excellent question from a listener, I'm embarrassed to say, a while ago. And apologies that it's taken us so long to respond to such a thoughtful and important question. But here we are, and actually it's become even more timely than it was when the listener submitted it. So hopefully even more useful information now than we would have a couple months ago. So I'm going to read the question, including the compliments, and then we'll take it from there. Hello, I am a new listener to your podcast, although at this point she's not such a new listener, and have been binging it for a couple of weeks now. So thank you. I have a situation that I could use some advice on. My 10-year-old daughter just started her period recently. I unfortunately live in a state where if something unthinkable were to happen to her, we would not be able to access abortion services. If you were in my situation, would you go ahead and start her on birth control pills? Thanks for any advice you can give. It's such a good question. It's such a good question. So what... I think we should do, Vanessa, is I think we should break this question into two parts, which is one, what are the most common reasons why people start their kids on hormones in general? I think that's sort of an adjacent bucket of facts, but an important one. And then two, the question around hormonal contraception as birth control and whether or not someone in a state facing limited access to abortion might consider doing that. And the reason I think it's important to cover the general 
group of reasons is that it's very, very easy for a person to hear that a young kid is taking the pill and think, oh my gosh, it's a 10-year-old whose parents are putting her on the pill. She must be sexually active, right? Suddenly it's like, you know, A goes to B goes to W. And actually, it's far more common for kids to end up taking hormones, often orally in the form of a pill, but sometimes in the form of either a long-term shot that lasts three months, or you have a little glass cylinder, teeny tiny little pipette that's inserted under the skin that has the hormone in it. And that slowly leaks out the hormone over a couple of years. So there are lots of different delivery methods for hormones. But the most common reason why younger kids are put on hormones actually is not for birth control. It's actually for control of bleeding during periods. I say control of bleeding because when kids are very young and they're using hormones for this purpose, they're usually having very, very heavy bleeding and the hormones help regulate that and reduce the bleeding. We can talk about why that's important. And when the kids are older, often hormones are used in the opposite direction. If they're not getting a regular period, sometimes this will help regulate their period. So when they're younger, it's usually for flow. And when they're a little bit older, it's usually for sort of an attempt to get them cyclic. And just as a reminder, and some of you may have listened to our episode with Hina Talib, who's an adolescent medicine specialist who focuses a lot of her work on endometriosis and her guidelines around an adolescent's period is if it's getting in the way of ordinary life, heavy bleeding, very painful, affecting sleep, affecting normal activity, that is a time to go see a pediatrician or an adolescent medicine specialist, and then if need be, further specialty. But it is not a moment to dismiss that your child needs to get over it or get on with it and deal with it. If it is getting in the way of normal activity, then it is a time to speak to a healthcare provider. And that is the absolute right advice. And that advice stresses people out sometimes because I think they know that the recommendation is going to be that their child go on hormones. And there are a lot of people who understandably do not want their kids taking hormones unnecessarily, or they don't want their kids taking hormones for one reason when they can also be used for another. In other words, if they're having heavy bleeding or terribly painful cramps, and they also will have the benefit of birth control, that creates stress for some parents. So it's important to present all the issues together before we tease them apart. And Cara, can you talk about why it's actually protective and important for an adolescent who is not getting her period to be getting her period? Like what else goes on in the body and why is it valuable to the body to be menstruating regularly? Yeah, you know... That one is a little harder to answer than the treating of excessive bleeding, but I'll take a stab at it. When kids are menstruating and expect to be having a regular period, which is usually, if you've been having a period for a couple of years, you should expect after a couple of years that that period gets into some sort of regular cycle. And most Physicians will agree a regular cycle means from the start of one period to the start of the next period is anywhere from three to five weeks. Even if it varies within that, and sometimes it's three and sometimes it's five, that's considered pretty cyclic. There are kids who from day one, it's like they can count to 28 and that next period starts. And they are regular, regular, regular. It feels sometimes annoying to them, but boy, do other kids see that as a gift because they are their own internal clock, right? They just, it happens regularly for them. For the kids who get a period, go six weeks, get another period, they might have a little spotting after two weeks, wait another eight weeks, get another period. It's very, very intermittent. You know, there's this philosophy among some gynecologists that by giving the kids what we call exogenous hormone, so hormone that's not produced by the body, but hormone that is taken in, it can kind of jumpstart a more regular cycle, which will then create this virtuous cycle where the ovaries ripen the egg, 
the ripening egg produces some progesterone. So the ovaries produce estrogen. The ripening egg produces some progesterone. Those two chemical signals tell the uterus to build up a nice healthy lining that one day could maybe host a fertilized egg. Then the ovary releases that egg. It ovulates. And those hormones kind of surge for a second and then they start to fall off, although the egg continues to produce a little bit of progesterone. Then the egg makes its way from the ovary through the fallopian tube into this uterus that is lined by now a very cushy, very healthy, bloody tissue lining. And if that egg has not been fertilized, the egg then passes through the body And the lining, because now there is no estrogen signal left and there is no progesterone signal left, the egg has left the body and it's not making any more progesterone, the body then goes, oh, I don't need this uterine lining anymore. And it dumps this one and it's ready to regrow another one. And there's an argument that it is the sort of regular cyclic nature of growing a nice healthy lining that predicts a nice healthy lining when the body is finally going to get pregnant. Okay. That's one reason. I think another really good reason does have to do with birth control. It has to do with birth control in a little bit of an insidious way. So let me be very clear that I'm going to say we to this one, Vanessa, we, me a doctor and you not a doctor, we both agree wholeheartedly that following a calendar method in order to predict when you're going to ovulate And using that as your source of birth control, relying upon what you think your body's timing will be, is a very bad idea, okay? We do not endorse this plan at all because it so often backfires and doesn't work. However, the adolescent brain is an interesting machine and there are definitely many kids out there who do rely to some extent on the timing of their period in order to predict their likelihood of pregnancy. Again, a very bad idea. A very, very, very bad idea. If a kid is doing this and their period is completely irregular and all over the map, then sometimes, I would even say oftentimes, because they can't predict anything about their cycle, if they're leaning into this method, they are more likely to put themselves in a situation where they could get pregnant because they are not only are they using the timing of the cycle, but they don't know the timing. So they've thrown the whole thing out and they've said, whatever, I don't know when I'm going to ovulate. So I don't have to worry about it. I can't get pregnant. And that sort of teenage thinking, which I think if we all pause for a second, we can remember days when that type of thinking didn't seem so illogical, but that type of thinking really can change the course of a teenager's life. And so I do think that there are adolescent gynecologists out there who believe that by helping to regulate the cycle and helping kids to understand kind of when things are happening through the course of their cycle, they are building in some predictability that also builds in a safeguard in terms of pregnancy prevention. None of those adolescent gynecologists think that using a calendar method is a smart form of birth control. I just want to be super clear. And we'll do a whole episode on all different kinds of birth control that is being used as birth control and not a sort of ancillary subject. And there are other reasons why people put their kids on hormones and we're not going to get into them today because we want to get to the listener question. So like acne control is another yeah, let's why. let's list them. So acne control, that's a big one. And mm-hmm. and we should, you know, honestly, we should just do a whole episode about that. That's an important one. Vanessa, also PCOS, right? Yes. Can you explain what PCOS is? Polycystic ovary syndrome or ovarian syndrome. It's when the hormonal signaling is off because there are cysts, like little fluid-filled sacs in the ovaries that cause a, a whole host of hormonally driven shifts in the body. And it's all because this estrogen and progesterone cycling is a little bit off. And it's not uncommon. PCOS is not uncommon. Um, And you will often hear about kids using either hormonal birth control or spironolactone, 
which is a diuretic medicine or some combination of the two in order to manage their PCOS. So that's not an uncommon. And then that first category we talked about, the heavy bleeders. And I think it is important to just take a second to talk about the heavy bleeders. Vanessa, do you know why heavy bleeding is something that we want to help prevent? Well, anemia is a real concern amongst people who menstruate, particularly if they have very heavy. I mean, it can affect energy levels, focus, concentration, just general health. Right. So anemia means that the number of red blood cells in your body, floating around your body, is low. The net number of blood cells that carry what's called hemoglobin, and hemoglobin is what binds oxygen and takes oxygen from your lungs to your tissues and your muscles and your organs and literally provides them the fuel they need in the form of oxygen. And then hemoglobin releases the oxygen when it gets to those tissues or organs or muscles. If you don't have a lot of red blood cells because you've bled so many out, and then you don't have enough hemoglobin because the red blood cell is the home of the hemoglobin, then your energy tanks. And it's not just sort of the physical energy, like, ooh, that's how I feel today. It's also your body's reservoir to do things like think productively, grow well. I mean, it's it's all of it. So no one wants to be anemic. It feels bad. But a growing kid in particular, you want to kind of keep your eye on that. It can be very hard. It's a serious challenge to understand what heavy flow means for any given person because it's such a subjective term, right? So if you've got a nine or 10 or 11-year-old who's a young, early menstruator who's got a really heavy flow, but it's all they know, they may not know that nine, 12, 15 days of bleeding is a lot of bleeding. They may not know that soaking through a pad every two or three hours is a lot of bleeding. And so they may think this is what a period is, and it can be really important for parents to help kids gauge how much bleeding they're having during their period. If you have a new menstruator, the temptation when you get a kid all set up, okay, here's how a pad works, or maybe they're using a tampon, or here's your period and where is to be like, okay, job done, moving on to next complex and exhausting topic I'm going to face. But the fact is you have to keep checking in with your kid who's getting a period because things change, their way of coping change, the way it impacts their life changes, their understanding of their body and what feels normal and doesn't feel normal changes. So it's actually really an ongoing conversation. And because that's true of everything else you're going to help your kid navigate, it's not a bad thing to just have regular check-ins and be like, hey, how's it going? Or, hey, I noticed there were a lot of pads in your garbage can. Or I noticed that you leak through a lot of underwear. I noticed that your sheets had a leak on them. And I just wanted to see, you know, is that normal? Is that happening a lot? What's going on there? Or have you ever counted how many pads you use in a day? Mm -hmm. You know, do you want to understand what's typical? I love the word typical instead of normal. You know, do you want to know what's typical for Mm -hmm. a kid? And by the way, if you don't know the answer, you know, we can point you to some resources where you can look it up because it's important to understand. It's normal to saturate Now, pads come in all different shapes and sizes, but it's normal to saturate a pad in about four to six hours. If you're bleeding through a pad in one to two hours and you're doing that constantly for two or three days, that's a lot of bleeding. Yep. One last note before we get to this specific question. If you do have a heavy bleeder, definitely ask the doctor who's caring for you to make sure to check their thyroid gland Mm. because hypothyroidism is a very, very common cause of heavy bleeding. And sometimes it's the only symptom is heavy bleeding, menstrual bleeding, not other bleeding. Um, So if you cut yourself, you won't bleed profusely if your thyroid gland is sort of out of whack. But if you're a menstruator, you may have very, very heavy bleeding. So another reason to go see a healthcare provider because healthcare providers generally know to check that before they start hormonal contraception in order to treat the bleeding. And if they can treat it with thyroid hormone, then that's what they will do. Do you or someone you love have smelly feet? Well, this is for you. We made magical socks. We did. The magic is zinc. With zinc around, bacteria cannot grow. And if bacteria cannot grow, well then, 
there are no bacteria to eat the sweat. And if there's no bacteria to eat the sweat, then there's no off-gassing. And if there's no off-gassing, then there's no smell. That's how umsocks work. Check out the link in our show notes or go to myoomla.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. So with all that background, and there's much more we could cover, but I want us to get to the listener question. The obvious place to start is, is it ever too young to start a kid or an adolescent on hormones? And specifically birth control, 
hormones that are used not necessarily for birth control or for birth control. Yeah. So I think it's the rare scientist or physician who would say that someone who has not yet gone through certain stages of puberty should be on hormones. So let me say that without all those double and triple negatives. It makes no sense to start a child on hormones until they have hit certain stages of puberty. This is actually true when you look at gender affirming care and you look at doctors who are treating kids who are gender questioning and who want to transition. Those same physicians use the same criteria. They will not use hormonal treatment before puberty begins. And, you know, there may be one or two out there, but that standard of care is very, very clear that you don't treat the body with a hormone until the body is starting to produce that or other sex hormones. But specifically with birth control, and if a kid is now menstruating, that means they're, you know, somewhere in the middle, let's say, of their puberty journey, theoretically. What are the guidelines? Is it too soon? Is it too early? Because at the heart of her question, Cara, and this is really why the question is so important and weighty and the reason we're even entertaining. I mean, to be honest, we couldn't even imagine having a conversation about this question. I was going to say a decade ago, five yeah, years five ago, years three ago, years three ago. Years ago. Three years so ago. The issue is that if you are a parent of a child in a state where abortion is illegal, and even now we know that medical abortions are illegal, right? Taking a pill rather than having a DNC is illegal. And even taking a kid across state lines or ordering pills across state lines in order to have a medical abortion, there are cases across this country where parents are being prosecuted. After a child, there's a case in India where a child was raped. Yeah. And the parents tried to do well, it. So and and now with dueling rulings happening in courts calling into question that, you know, the, the medical abortion pills are mifepristone and mis, misoprostol. And, you know, the calling into question of the legality of the FDA's approval of these drugs is terrifying. And right? so these are federal laws now, not just state laws. Correct. Which would affect people in all 50 states. So those of you who live in states that have laws. I mean, I live in California. California is literally, our governor, Gavin Newsom, has declared this a sanctuary state for abortions. It won't matter if mifepristone is outlawed. Now, it's a combination of drugs and one works well, just not perfectly well. The combination works much, much better. So it's, you know, in those states where there are abortion laws on the books protecting the right to abortion, those same states, if a federal decision is made to pull an abortion drug off the market, those same states will not have access to those abortion drugs. So this is a, this is a very heady, very big question, but I'm going to give you an answer that is very medical. And then I, I'd actually like your answer, Vanessa, because I think you're as well-read and well-schooled in all of this as certainly as anyone I know. I would look at it from the perspective of the safety question. So on the one hand, and we're going to have to hold two truths at the same time. One truth is there is this fear that a child could end up pregnant. And the fear, the sort of terror fantasy is that a child is sexually assaulted and ends up pregnant, right? I think that's the implication in this. Although as a kid gets older, it may move from that fear to the child is, you know, making a volitional decision and having sex and then can get pregnant. But there's this fear that a child can get pregnant and at 10 or 11 or 12 have no legal support to end the pregnancy and need to carry that pregnancy and deliver that baby, which is medically dangerous. Let me be very clear because the body has not completed puberty. And so things like the pelvis has not widened the way it needs to in order to accommodate a vaginal delivery. There are, there's so many reasons why a 10 or 11 or 12 year old pregnancy is medically complicated. And then of course, there are many more emotional and social repercussions, right? Everything from what happens on that 
child's journey through school. What happens to that child's child in terms of their support, their network? It's a non-breadwinning 12-year-old or 11-year-old, right? I mean, you just go down this and you go, okay, so from that safety standpoint, this feels like a rational choice. But then I want to look at the other safety standpoint. This is the other truth I'm going to hold which is we don't have that much data about long-term use of hormonal contraception. We have about 20 years worth of data. Most of the studies look at 20-year spans of oral hormonal contraception. There are studies in the work that look at longer, but I cannot tell you as a physician that if a kid starts at 10, that I know what the implications of using birth control are beyond age 30. And there's a whole lot more reproductive life beyond age 30 for that individual. And it's interesting because when you start to weigh that, there are some wonderful articles that have been done recently based upon a research study looking at estrogen versus estrogen and progesterone versus progestin only birth control pills. And we actually covered these two writers and how they wrote about these studies in our latest newsletter. And we talked about how Emily Oster, who is an economist, and Jen Gunter, who is an OBGYN, both reported the results of the study in such different ways, but they reported the same results. And the results they reported were, yeah, there is a tiny little increased risk of breast cancer, for instance, with um, oral contraception. Well, those studies were not done on kids who were 10 and 11 and 12 taking these hormones. And so even though we have 20 years of data looking at what the risks are, those risks are looking at very different populations. They were looking at older teens, 20, 30, 40-year-olds. So I don't know. From a safety standpoint, I weigh the two things and I don't know. I mean, both feel like safety issues to me. And you could say, okay, well, if the fear is sexual assault and really not just sexual assault, rape. Correct. Vaginal, penile vaginal rape. Correct. Where the assaulter ejaculates inside the child. I mean, God forbid it makes me want to sob just thinking about it. Then you could say, okay, well then you make sure the kid tells you and then you give them plan B or, you know, emergency contraception, and then you take care of it that way and you don't need to do it prophylactically. But that assumes that a child would be capable of telling a trusted adult what happened. And sadly, we know in our culture that victims of sexual assault so often do not report what has happened to them because of the fear of shame and ostracism. And for a kid that age, they might not even understand what's happened to them. They might not even know the consequences in order to be able to tell an adult. And so while logically we might say, oh, well, there's a better option and then your kid doesn't need to be on sustained birth control pills. Sadly, it's something we have to think about. And sadly, it's not a realistic option to address the fear of a young pregnant child as a result of an assault and then an older teen. So Here's what I would say, Cara. I want to address the older kids first. If you have a kid who is, let's say, 13, and you've had other conversations. Can we start with the older teen who, if you have a kid who is sexually active or interested in being sexually active, given the climate in this country right now, I think we have to be very, very clear Yeah, but the problem is with 90% of the adults I speak to, they assume that their child is too young to be sexually active. And so, well, that's fair. There's a series of conversations. So I've spoken to parents of 15-year-olds and they will say to me, oh my God, there's no way they are years off. And I know for a fact that that kid may not be having sex, but they're certainly getting close to, you know, the pathway to sex and all it takes is one. Great course correction. Number one, parents have the conversation. This is very important. But number two, the kids who are sexually active or adjacent to being sexually active, they really, really, really need to be using birth control 
if they don't want to run the risk of a pregnancy. I don't care what their gender is. I don't care what their gender is. Right. They should be using birth control. And as a side note and a PSA, the only way to protect against a sexually transmitted infection is a condom. It can be a male condom. It can be a female condom. But you need to have a barrier between the two participants in a sexual act in order to prevent a sexually transmitted infection. That is not what we're talking about here, though. We're talking about pregnancy. So if you have a kid who even seems like mildly social, interested, no, I mean, it could take one party one night for a kid to decide to have sex with somebody else. Certainly don't wait until your kid is in a long-term committed relationship, because if you've listened to half the episodes on our podcast, you will know that the order of operations these days for kids to be sexually active often has no relationship to whether they're in a committed relationship. So instead of putting your head in the sand and assuming, and instead of assuming that the pathway towards sexual involvement is the same as it was when we were kids, because we are here to tell you it is not, it is completely different. Have a conversation with your kid, talk about birth control, make an appointment for them to see a healthcare provider, to have private conversations with that provider about birth control because they may want to be on birth control, but don't feel comfortable talking through it with you. If you have religious beliefs that prevent you from having a kid on birth control, that's a really hard and complicated topic. And all I'm going to say is make sure they know the consequences of having sex And we can't give you any other advice besides that because, you know, your faith is your faith, but at least make sure your kid knows how a person gets pregnant through penile vaginal intercourse. So this is all to say, do not imagine it doesn't affect your kid. It doesn't relate to your kid. We've talked about on other episodes how common IUDs now are for teenage girls, college age people with uteruses and vaginas, they're super common. Remember, they do not protect against STIs or STDs, but they do prevent pregnancy. So now let's go to your 13-year-old. So now let's go to the 13-year-old. And we're going to get to the 10-year-old. We're going to get to the 10-year-old. Unfortunately, the conversation with a 13-year-old is a conversation about protecting yourself And if you can't protect yourself from sexual assault, which you can't prevent sexual assault, right? You can give your kid scenarios on how to ask for help, where to ask for help, who to ask for help. But if God forbid you have a child who has been assaulted, there are a series of conversations you need to have had with that child to make sure they come to you or they come to a trusted adult so that someone knows what has gone on with this child. I cannot believe. I, I Cara, it's like, I can't believe this is the series of conversations. Mm-hmm. However, regardless of the abortion laws in this country, helping kids understand that there are no secrets between their loving caregivers and themselves, even if another adult tells them it's a secret, making sure they know that if they are a victim of unwanted touch or worse assault, that they have done nothing wrong, that there's nothing to be ashamed of, that they are lovable and loved regardless of what happens to them, for them to understand that there are things that can be done to help them after the fact, right? And finally, you let your kids know that there are ongoing lifelong mental health impacts on people who have been sexually assaulted. And so in general, in your home to treat people, anyone, when there's news about a sexual assault, when it comes up at a school, when it comes up in your community, to make sure that your kids know that sexual assault is a lifelong issue for someone to deal with. And so... Can I rewind though? Yes. One thing you said, you said at the very top of those beautiful comments, which I agree with wholeheartedly. You said you cannot prevent it. And I just want to add to that a little asterisk. The majority of sexual assaults are not stranger. Okay. And that is why you started at that premise. There are things that you can do to prevent stranger assault that are a little bit more effective than non-stranger assault. 
And those include everything from thinking through how you travel through the world, not putting yourself in situations like walking alone at night through an area you don't know very well, you know, like all those scenarios, not having a buddy at a party when you're older, you know, all of these, there are definitely social skills that can be baked into reducing the risk of a stranger assault that are not protective when it's not a stranger assault. Um, But I think it's very important for people to get educated about that. And there are also self-defense classes, which are wonderful and empowering, and that really bring a tremendous amount of confidence to kids who, hey, I am alone. I My parents both work and I have to walk home from school and I have to be alone and I'm scared. How do I carry myself in the world? What do I do when I see someone who makes me feel uncomfortable? You know, And there are physical skills that you can gain through self-defense courses. And I think it's very, very important on the stranger danger side. The problem is that because the majority of assaults happen by someone who is known to the victim, it is harder to prevent those. It is harder to have your guard up when it's someone you know and you think you should trust. It's just important to set the stage that that is why you made that comment. And that, that is the sad state of affairs. And the thing that I think a lot about, and I hope that we can continue to encourage this on the podcast and in our work, is to empower kids to trust their instincts and to trust their guts. And for us as caregivers to trust our guts. I mean, I've had situations where my kids have said to me, that person just like really makes me uncomfortable. I don't like to be around them. And I will always say to them, listen to that instinct. Even though there are relatives in the room who are saying to my children, oh, get over it. Don't be so judgmental, you know. I thought the grammar of that was different. I thought you were saying, even if there are relatives. (laughs) Oh, well, for many, many people, it's true. It's true. Um, So one thing and one really important thing is to empower our kids to trust their instincts and to continue to help them hone their gut instincts and give them ways out of situations that feel unsafe, conversations, scenarios, you know, so many of us have been raised to not rock the boat, to be polite, to acquiesce because that's the polite thing to do. And I have to tell you, I don't give a shit about polite when my kid or someone else's kid feels unsafe. And so that's right. That's there right. is a level of vigilance that we need to have about our kids because our spidey sense is going to tell us if they don't verbally tell us that they are uncomfortable, their body language, their vocalization, their reaction, their desire to participate, attend certain things. So again, being on our guard about that, other adults that they're spending time with, are they going to camp? Are they on travel sports teams? Are they away from us? Again, we have to have conversations with them about their safety, their instincts, all of that. Independent of their gender independent of their gender. This is not a coded conversation about girls. That's right. That's 100% right. I know many, many men who were assaulted as boys and young men. It is not exclusive to females. Now, the conversation about pregnancy in this scenario. So now let's get to our 10-year-old and let's land there. We've taken this the long way around. I'm glad we have. So here we are at the 10-year-old. And Vanessa, what is your advice to this mom, given that we don't have a lot of good data on long-term use? We don't have a lot of data on hormonal contraceptive use during the later stages of puberty. And we don't have a lot of data about what is going to happen to kids as access to abortion continues to be rolled back in this country. What is a parent to do? I think that there's a lot of foundational work that parents can do to make sure the lines of communication are open with their kids on a number of different subjects, right? So the first one is a kid's menstrual cycle, how regular it is, are they getting it, right? Did they have it and then not have it, right? Because again, if God forbid something has happened, 
we need to know. And we may not know because they've told us we might know because we're in conversation with them about their menstrual cycle. So that's number one, open lines of communication about menstrual cycle. At the very least, just to understand a kid's menstrual health and for all those reasons that Cara cited. But number two, God forbid situation, it's important to know. The second foundational kind of conversation is about safety and about if God forbid something happens to a child, who they go to, that they are loved, that they are lovable, that there are adults out there to help them, to care for them, all of those things. And number three is that down the road, right, as an older person, there's something called sex, right? This is a 10-year-old. We're talking about a 10-year-old. We recommend having conversations about sex with 10-year-olds, basic conversations about sex because of porn exposure. But this is another reason for a child to understand what sex is because if God forbid someone does it to them without their consent, they have to be able to tell you what happened. And if they don't know what a penis is, what a vagina is, what pain feels like down around their vulva and their vagina, then they have no capability of explaining to you what has happened. And here's why your answer is so critical. Because if a child can tell you what has happened, there is a way to use emergency contraception that is not medical abortion, but it is emergency contraception. And let me walk you through that for the last minute or two, because I think this is a place that provides a middle ground for the parent who wrote into us and for so many other parents out there. A medical abortion means that there has been implantation and what we call a successful pregnancy. A pregnancy is when a fertilized egg lands in the uterus and implants. And then later, usually somewhere between six and 20 or so weeks later, there is a termination of that pregnancy. That is an abortion. And medical abortion, the termination of the pregnancy happens through taking medicines. Emergency contraception is not medical abortion. However, in the same way that you can take a combination of pills in order to have a medical abortion, you can take a combination of oral contraceptive pills, hormones, in order to prevent implantation in the first place. That has to happen within the first, most people say 24 to 48 hours after the sexual act, okay, after I'm going to say the assault here, the rape here in this scenario. If you have a kid who's going to come tell you and talk to you, then it is within the confines of the law that that kid can be given high-dose oral contraception in order to prevent implantation, which prevents pregnancy. By definition, that prevents pregnancy. It is not an abortion. And so to me, that is the middle ground. That is where, if this was my child, where I would land on it. I don't know that I feel super comfortable saying, take a hormone while your body's hormones are shifting and changing so dramatically. I don't know that I feel so comfortable saying, take a hormone now and stay on it for however many years you want. Maybe it's 20, but maybe it's 30 and maybe it's 40. But if I've got a kid who knows they've done nothing wrong and they can come and they can tell me that they've been assaulted, then I can absolutely give them emergency contraception and prevent implantation. And I would add two comments. One is I keep emergency contraception in my house for anyone in the world who might decide they need emergency contraception. It's just something I have and that I keep in my house. And the second comment I would make is letting your kids know that they can always come to you no matter what is not a conversation you have once. It is a conversation you have with your kids over and over and over again because as they get older and as their risk behaviors become more and more risky, they will begin to imagine that they can no longer come to you if something happens. And they need to know that no matter what, you will love them, you will help them, you will care for them, even if they have done something scary or dangerous or dumb, 
that you were there for them. So imagining that if you tell that to a 10-year-old, they will remember it when they're 17. They will not remember. It is an ongoing conversation. And you can say the exact same thing every single year or every single month for as long as puberty lasts, which is now a decade. But to keep reminding them that no matter what, you are there for them and available to them. And I just want to thank this listener writing that question. I can feel the fear and the worry in your heart. And I get it. I hear you. I am sorry that you live in a place that is bringing on this fear because I completely, it's reverberating within me to understand your your fear and your worry. And I am so grateful that you wrote in with that question. So thank you for trusting us with this really important topic. That's a wrap. I think that's a wrap. Thanks, Cara. Thanks, Vanessa. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So, anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. Yet. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.